Good to be with you all. Week five, thinking biblically about sexuality and gender. I want to remind you, we'll read that covenant of community in a couple minutes. I want to encourage you, when you speak or respond, that you do so in a way that is kind and generous, willing to not only educate, but uh, learn as much as the other. Uh, also want to remind you, we'll have some time for some discussion like we have normally, but it's, it's not a ton of time just because of the nature of these classes. And so I want to remind you that week seven, so two weeks, it's actually a full Q&A, meaning you can bring the questions, ask the questions. In fact, I mean, I, I, don't, think, I don't think Casey's mentioned this, and I don't think I have either, but you, you could feel free at this point even just to be sending emailed questions to me or to Casey that we would just take. So you don't have to wait till that day. If you want to formulate something in writing that we could respond to, we'd be happy to do that because these are complex issues that we're dealing with. But I'm going to have us start with the collective reading of the Covenant of Community. The the sheets are in the back as they've always been, but just in case you didn't know that, there should be enough back there for everybody. So we're going to read it out loud together, then I'm going to pray, then I'll introduce our topic today, and and, and we'll have at it. So let's read together. Lord, help us by your Spirit to hear and see your word rightly and wisely applied, listen actively with a desire to learn, especially viewpoints not our own, speak with grace only to build up and encourage one another, honor all people, and see all as made in your image, love all people, even when it is hard, just as Jesus Christ would do. Let's pray. Father, you are such a good God to us. And even as we have, at least for those of us that were part of the first service, discussed the core biblical truth that God is love, help us to model that by the way we think and we talk and we interact. And even as we act toward the realities about which we speak and discuss today. Guide our time, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to do, in the, in the two weeks back-to-back that I had, I wanted to do two things. Number one, I wanted to give you a text that kick you in the hiney. Can I say hiney in, in this room? Kick you in the hiney, right? And the reason is not because I'm coming up with that, but because that's one of the core teachings of Jesus in regard to interacting with the world. It's not a posture of Christianity that we probably prefer. Again, what we have been talking about in this class is this overall concern that we may have or almost certainly are more catechized or as catechized as much by cultural engagements than we are the Christian ones. And the reality of love and compassion and generosity and willingness to face persecution is not on the top of the list for the American posture. I'm assuming, just to be honest, if you grew up in the Chinese church, I bet it is. I bet if you're a Christian in in North Korea, your posture of willing to suffer is way higher than it is in the land of America. So just think about that. What is making North Korean Christians willing to suffer more than American ones? Is it the environment? Is it the Bible? Etc. Just realize our environment will catechize us. Our social location makes an impact, and we need to understand and know that. So even though I wanted to address last week that love your enemies, I, I didn't even frame it much regarding what it was addressing other than saying, hey, let's let this text and Jesus' words instruct us a little bit. And I got that pushback, heard it, sometimes through the grapevine, 
regarding wanting more. And again, why so quick? First, listen to the Lord when he wants you to listen to yourself. Do you want to hate instinctively when it comes to this heated culture war issue, or are you willing to love? Well, now we can talk. What does loving those opposed to biblical sexuality look like? Now, I want to be careful. Here, here's the thing. I want to be careful because, again, I'm concerned that all of us, I'm not just saying you, this is me too, we're raised in the same context. All of us are tempted to respond in less than biblical modes or more cultural engagement modes. And we've given some postures of engagement. The two most common in our tradition are defense against and purity from. The purity from response, which is, is common, but maybe not as much of an influence, I would say here, is the flee, flee, just get away, get away. I want my kids to have nothing to do with that. I don't want them getting their ass their pronouns at Hanukkah High School. I, I just don't want, I, flee. And there's logic and reason to that. At the, the, you, you, could, you may decide to do that in various capacities of your life. In fact, in one sense, all of these postures, defense against, purity from, relevance to, and faithful presence, those are the four postures that we've taught on at least eight years in this church. All three of those first three all have something positive. Like you should be guarding your children from some, some stuff, for sure. What that looks like and how you implement that, there's some Christian liberty in regard. But to the purity from flee is the response. The defense against, and that is, I can, I'm just, again, I, I'm not doing surveys, but I, I'm just feeling the pulse of our culture. There's a lot of that among us. And again, we, that's what we were raised in. The defense, if purity from is flee, defense against is fight. So that's where that, if, if that, if, what was that response that you felt inside you when you just kept hearing this love your enemies? If you felt this, right, okay, I got it, let's move, what do we do? Or what are we, what's the response? Like, what, what, are we, what, what are we supposed to say? Just evaluate that. What is that response that's brewing in you stemming from? A vision of the world, a vision of culture, culture war, etc. So I didn't want to just open up and say, what's our response? Because, man, the purity from approach would be about separating entirely, which, again, in one sense does some good, in another sense fails for us to follow the Great Commission. The defense against has some right truths to it. We should be promoting human flourishing. We should be helping humans know how God made them. Like to not be telling people God made you male and female and it is good would be wrong on our part. But they're not enemies to crush. They're image bearers who are deceived. If we demonize them and dehumanize them, as I hear in the echoes of conversations, then we actually are adopting the culture of the world, which would want to crush us. What's remarkable about Jesus is he didn't dehumanize. I mean, again, picture somebody beating the tar out of you physically. And then, while you are being crucified, if you can imagine this in any way, you have no idea what you're imagining. While you are being crucified, you say in Luke, what is it, 2334a, I had to do a paper on that text once so I remember the verse exactly. While hanging on the cross, you hear Jesus say, forgive them for they know not what they do. How in the world could any human say that? So at least measure your response to the world that you may find as an opponent in some way comparable to the response of Jesus Christ. None of us are Jesus. We need him. We aren't him. But if we are going to honor the Father as he did in every way, there should be at least some of that in our intentionality. So instead of just 
wanting to wrestle with responses that would probably turn into culture war discussions, I thought I would use biblical categories. Whatever kind of response that we are going to do, it must match the three commands of King Jesus. What are the three commands of King Jesus? Love God, love neighbor, love one another. So if you want to make sure, if you want to like plumb line, you're right, you want to make sure, grab the level, grab the measuring table, you want to make sure what you're doing is measured by Scripture, then you should make sure all three of those are happening. So I give you three responses that we should do under each of those categories in your notes there, love God, love neighbor, love one another. First, love God. We need to, this is the church, we need to submit to the authority of Scripture and God's design for sexuality and gender. Now, we are. Like, we, our church is not wrestling with whether it's okay for a man to marry a man. That's, that's not even on the radar. Our church is not wrestling with, I mean, the, the, the changing of biological sex. Not even on the radar. And churches that are wrestling with that need to submit to the authority of Scripture. It's plain and simple. But just, just a first step. Are we submitting to Scripture in regard to our bodies and our sexuality and gender. I, I, I think we are. Our denomination would say that we are. Our congregation, by its voting in the bylaws and doctrinal statement, would say that we are. If any pastor or elder would ever suggest that we change those things, they should be voted out immediately. Non-negotiable. That is what the Bible says. And sadly, those who are part of the Broader church are more than willing to debate those things, and you're seeing denominations, whether it's versions of Anglican or uh, Episcopalian or mainline denominations, decide to splinter off and break off from those things. And I don't think there actually is a choice in those matters. If our denomination began to fudge in those things, I mean, I'm not the, only, I'm not the CEO, but I would recommend to the elders that we not be part of that denomination. Thankfully, that is quite the opposite the case. They recently came out with a statement not that there was any question, but they just, in the midst of this, like we are doing now, they just came out and reaffirmed. Not even, not, not, not even a question. There's not even a debate. There's not even discussion there. And, there are, and there, to, to my knowledge, there are no churches in our denomination that even wrestle with that. But that's not the same for all those who claim the name of Christ. So we need to submit to the authority of Scripture and God's design for sexuality and gender. The second thing, we need to honor the Lord with our own bodies and with our own sexuality and gender. We, we, we embody Scripture's design. So that's not just a doctrinal statement. We actually practice what we preach. Our message should be not just in word, but in deed. And, and let, me just, let me just say this. Not as easy as you think. Uh, the reality is, is that the evangelical church has been filled with horrific examples of the use of pornography, with sexual abuse, power of one gender over another, that has been horrific in numerous cases. That's not practicing what we preach. And we should be just appalled by any kind of heterosexual deviance as we are with homosexual deviance. We just happen to be a little bit more comfortable with one than the other. But both of those are anathema to our Lord. So we should be very concerned with our own private spiritual lives of accountability regarding things like sexuality, which statistically would say one out of every six men in this room is in some way addicted to pornography. So to be honest, remember the John 
8 passage, technically John 7, 53 to 8, 11. I wrote a commentary on John. Jesus says, he who throws, who has no sin can cast a first stone. If we're being honest, we, we just are very good at highlighting the sins that we dislike the most and maybe we happen to not struggle with. We should be in uproar over the sexual deviance that is likely common in churches just like ours. That doesn't say we can't deal with both at the same time, because our culture is dealing with deviance of sexuality in lots of other ways, and obviously we need to talk about that, learn about that. I'm just telling you, Christians, if you're loving God, you're not just loving God because you're a good fighter. You're loving God because you're a good believer. Your heart, you care about your heart, not just some position somewhere held by some people and some deviants there. And finally, third, and I, I, I voiced this one before because I worry it needs to be practiced, and I think under the love God category it fits, in order to honor our Lord and match his ongoing patience toward us, we need to seek a proper balance between truth and grace, or, or the language we've used, principles and postures. And, and I, I would say that that covenant of community that two of our staff members crafted, Casey Ellers and Katie Rudy, fits well the postures that we'd want to adopt. No slander, no joking, no negative talk, but rather empathy, compassion, and humanizing treatment. Even our anger, if we're not guarding our hearts, even our anger may actually be springing more from pride than from principles. The moment you dehumanize and demonize somebody, that's probably more your pride than principles, because principles would be way more honing you in on your posture. Here, here, let me say that third one another way. The gospel is not just what other people need, but what we need to deal with other people. Did you hear me say that? The gospel is not just what other people need, but what we need to deal with other people. Because if we aren't careful, we put our place in the seat of judge. That doesn't mean we aren't broken for our world or angry at the brokenness and mad at the intentionality and agendas behind it all. It just simply means we are not King Jesus. And we need the gospel to guard our hearts. Because again, when you see Jesus, you just don't see him making jokes about tax collectors and prostitutes. You don't see him making jokes about the politicians, do you? I mean, if anybody, the true king, could slander wannabe kings, it would be Jesus. If anybody could say the election was stolen, Jesus could have said that, really. I mean, the election was stolen. Uh, he's not joking. You just don't see him play those games. Half the New Testament, 49% of the New Testament, it's just stories about Jesus, and all you see is compassion, and without denying righteous anger. But, it's, but it actually, he aims at more at whom? The religious leaders, the evangelicals of his day. He doesn't just shred the culture. He wasn't a culture warrior. More on that soon enough. But under that third point regarding love God, we can all agree that there is an internal work we can do, even if we disagree about, to, to, to bring back up the analogy or the illustration of the drag queen, we can disagree whether we should do protest gatherings or prayer meetings. We can disagree about that in our Christian liberty. But we can all agree that we need to check our hearts. And if we are not checking our hearts, 
If you're like, fine, 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 fine. What, what do we do about the school district? I, I get it. We'll get to that. But you don't want to skip past the love God part to get to the neighbor engagement. If you are skipping love God to get to the neighbor, something's wrong in you. Without denying that there's some neighbor engagement you need to wrestle with. All right. Love neighbor. Uh, the first thing I think we should, and this should be an impulse for us, is we need to pray formally and fervently for our enemies as Jesus specifically commands us to do. I worry, I said this last week, I worry that that is not our first impulse. I still can't get past seeing this sign, I think, it, or a little wooden thing somebody had etched when I was a young boy in Sunday school at First Free. And I don't even remember what room it was in, but for some reason it was etched in my mind. It said, and I don't even know the quote, I don't even know the origin, who knows, but it, it formed me. Above my Sunday school teacher's head, it would say, when we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. And just as a little boy, probably Sunday after Sunday, I would look up at that sign and read it. And I've never forgotten it. When we work, we work, but when we pray, God works. Why do we doubt that? That isn't some kind of weird dichotomy that says, you know, the car's broken, I'm just going to raise my hand and not use common grace mechanics. That's not, that's, not, that's not pitting special grace against common grace, right? Like both of those can coexist. But why is it that prayer is so low in the ordering of priorities? That probably gets a little bit to that love God problem, to be honest. We actually aren't trusting. Or we're trying to make it happen ourselves. We've noticed as a staff that there's, there's a lot of stuff going on in our staff, personal lives. There's a lot happening in my own life with my wife having ALS. Like that's, a, that's a major hit. But we've noticed that our staff is dealing with a lot. And it's requiring us to realize as a church staff, it isn't just by gifting. It's not just by talent. It actually has to be the Lord who works in all things. And what's beautiful is when you finally just get emptied of your own ability or energy or strength and you're forced to rely on King Jesus, then you see it. But why does it take us to be emptied? God graciously is willing to empty us of our own strength to remind us, who do you think you are? You think you're that talented that you don't need my spirit in this place. You think you're so gifted at a program or whatever it may be. I'm, I'm not saying we've taken the diagnosis that far. I'm just saying it's reminding us as we prayed this last Tuesday in our staff meeting that would not be our strength and power but the Lord's. So why is it that prayer is just low on the list? Oh yeah, 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 prayer. But what are we going to do when the drag queen comes to the rock? Do you see what I'm saying? Why is prayer not? We got to pray. We got to pray. Prayer is our greatest form of love. It's, a it's, a, it's also a self-transforming love. When you pray, it's hard to hate. Well, I asked you to pray last week when we talked about this. Prayer allows you to feel all your emotions, but it usually is asking for forgiveness along the way. And it leaves, ultimately leaves the result with our Heavenly Father. Here's the second thing, and he, the second under love neighbor. We need to be ambassadors of God's common grace 
who pursue the biblical vision for human flourishing in our community and our country. Now, this is probably where the defense against us want to go from the start, but I waited a little bit till we got there. But if anybody knows God's design for sexuality and gender, it's the people of the book. And we should be proclaiming that as not just divine grace as it is, but common grace. Let me matching their own biology, the way he made them, the way all families are meant to exist and function, the way that sexuality is best practiced, and male and female best working in harmony. If anybody should be talking and teaching about those things, it should be God's people. Remember what we've talked about in Genesis. We often debate the how question in Genesis 1 and 2. And, and I get it, right? We, 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 we want the answer in Genesis regarding the how. That's the debate. And, and it feels like since Darwin, we've been discipled to mainly only ask that question. That's what the debate is. Are you, are you young earth or old earth? I mean, to be honest, the how question is part of Genesis 1 and 2. But as I've said before, if you've missed this, listen up. The main questions in Genesis that the rest of the Bible is going to help answer is not just the how the world was made, but for whom and by whom, the who, the what, what did he make, and the why. To me, it's just, it breaks my heart to think that even for us, we can hone in Genesis and define it simply by the how. Now, I'm not trying to say Genesis doesn't talk about that, or it's not worth debating and discussing those things. Feel free. What I'm telling you is the main questions in Genesis, or maybe say the main answers it wants to give is who made the world and who was made in the making of the world? What did he make and why? I have framed that for my two teenage boys over and over again. And I, I was overjoyed to hear my younger son who's thinking about going into environmental ecology, wildlife biology. He doesn't want to be in a cubicle and I can't blame him. He wants to study God's creation. And he said to me when we were visiting one of the schools about how the, the, the who, the what, and the why help him make sense of all the how evolutionary stuff that he probably will bump into in the course of his coursework. Because it's not just about the how. Why did God make this world so beautiful, filled with animals? And what does that look like? And the who, how, how are we supposed to engage with God's created world? Brothers and sisters, our world doesn't even understand the male and female part. It doesn't even understand the nature that God's designed for marriage. And they're probably not going to be listening if you're just yelling at them. Somebody must winsomely present this beautiful vision of how God created male and female, and he designed the family, and the body matters. Again, it's not just a doctrine. It's a belief in God's common grace. So we need to have not political angst for power, but a purposeful love of the city. Political involvement can and should or might be involved in that. You have Christian liberty. Let that be a category you hear over and over again. You have Christian liberty to decide the best way for you to love neighbor. And for some of you, that's going to be, I'm going to get on the library board and I would never vote for a drag queen to come. I hope you would never vote for a drag queen to come. And that's wonderful. But that's not the only way you, you 
necessarily should feel pressure biblically to respond. You might be on county boards. You might want to be a state rep. Go for it. Christians throughout history have done that. But that's not the only way you have to. Political involvement is good and commendable, but too often it has been the primary, if not only, form of engagement that comes to our minds. Why? In my opinion, Christians in this generation need to decommit themselves from the culture wars. My worry, to be frank, is that culture warring, usually done through politics, is usually, if not always, a Christian baptism of secular methods of power and control. Now, I'm not saying everyone who gets into politics is doing that. Please don't hear me say that. What I'm saying is the larger culture war movements are basically wanting to take secular modes of power and influence and battle one another. I worry that that actually isn't, to quote James K.A. Smith, being political enough. It's actually a different kingdom and a different politic without denying that you have Christian liberty to be involved in the polis, the city, and the nation as you see fit. But in one sense, I would hope that Christians would feel a little bit politically homeless. Just a little. You are citizens of another kingdom. You are ambassadors of the reigning Lord Jesus Christ. Act like it. Finally, on their loved neighbor, we need to become the kinds of Christians, and this is hard to do if we're hating, we need to become the kinds of Christians who minister to people who are dealing with homosexual tendencies, with gender dysphoria, and every distortion of God's design for sexuality and gender. If they're only our enemies, we won't have compassion. So we not only are willing to promote what is good and true and right and stand on those principles, and desire or vote for or move for those principles to be enacted in every school district, in every local town, etc. But we have to be relationally engaged enough and compassionate enough to minister to people for whom these things are a legitimate struggle in their lives. And brothers and sisters, that is not just out there. These battles are happening in here, in this church. And do those people feel comfortable sharing that? Do they feel like they'd be loved and listened to and prayed for? If we are not careful, we make people our enemy rather than God's image bearers. The church has done a great job in the last couple generations telling people where they are wrong. The question is, can the church now tell those same people that they love them like God does? Finally, they love one another and then we can discuss it. We need to educate the church on a biblical view of sexuality and gender. So this includes the truth, God's design for sexuality and marriage, but also the grace. The many ways Christians can and should minister to our fallen world. Having this growth hour is, is, is in part us trying to do that. We need to be talking about these things, wrestling with these things. Second, we need to protect and prepare our children for our sexually progressive culture. Parents need to be on high alert. Protection without preparation is actually a failure to protect, if I'm being honest. Like, age appropriate, our, our conversation with our junior and high school son is different than our seventh grade daughter. Although I think when you're the younger kid, you pick up on conversations a little earlier. But the reality is, is those kind of conversations need to happen. No matter what form, under, under Christian liberty, no matter what kind of education you decide to do, for a new, all, all could be very good and appropriate. 
homeschool, private school, public school. We, we've done, I, I was both private school or Christian school and public school. We've done public school for our three kids. Christian Liberty would say all of those have value. So many factors, the parents, finances, the community, etc. right? Like it's too many variables to say this is the Jesus option. But the reality is like whatever you're going to do, protection and preparation is essential. So when our kids were entering in Hananiga, which is way more open to those things than even what they tasted at Roscoe Middle School, we had these conversations at dinner all the time, all the time. And even as they're entering in, we're talking about the same way I would talk. I didn't talk about it as much with my oldest boy, like watch out for bullies. I'm like, good luck bullies. <laughs> right? Like seriously, how are the bullies doing? Yeah, that funny. Uh, to him, I'd say, you shove anybody and your brother tells me you're in trouble, right? But, but um, with my daughter, I'll ask that question. You know, it, 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 are, do you see that? What kind of encounter? How about the relational stuff? Like you're asking your kids those questions about all the social dynamics, and some of those social dynamics include this sexually progressive social dynamics. You're having those. Because here's the thing. Even if you're able to keep them away from that in a, in, in a plethora of ways, Pretty soon, they're going to move out of your house, and they're engaged in the world, and they need to know how to deal with that. And they need to know in a different way at 20 than they do at 12, but they need to be slowly learning about that. We need to catechize our children not only in the Word of God, but the world in which they're going to live. And again, no one has more responsibility of that than the moms and dads. Grandparents and, and, and grandmas and grandpas, aunts and uncles, all of those have a role. In our family, our extended family has had a huge role in that, but it's probably been 5%. 95% has been mom and dad in our home, just by the way of time. Here are some things to consider regarding our kids. Uh, there needs to be age-appropriate awareness of sexuality and gender issues. You, you need to make them aware of this. You'd rather have their first categories being developed by you than by a stranger or by a movie. You'd rather have it be by you. Uh, even when it just came to sexuality, we, we pulled our kids off the school bus. Again, I'm not telling you, this is, this is, none of this is biblical. This is just Christian liberty. But because our younger son was getting exposed to videos on cell phones, he didn't even have a cell phone, but he was literally being shown pornographic videos on the bus. That was the last day any of our kids have ever taken a bus. Because there was completely unkept, you know, there was no supervision on that bus. You want those first categories to be from you. And you have to determine when it's best for your child. And there's been numerous times where like, to one of the younger kids, hey, could you uh, go to your, go, you know, go play somewhere because we're going to talk to older sibling. Okay, or, or in dinner it comes up like, well, let's talk about that later. And later I sit in their room and we have conversations because I want to guard the naivete of the young ones who don't need to deal with what a high school older brother is dealing with. But at some point, that needs to come into play. And we talk about things. It's in the news. It's in it's TV. You see, a, 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 you're watching a commercial and you see uh, two men kissing for some kind of drug commercial. I, that was, I saw that recently in a football game. On a, and we, I talked about it with the kids. I said, well, did you see that? What is that? Let's pro that you, again, you are literally processing with your kids now. Right now, you process, especially by the time they're in high school. By the way, that's what classical education did for centuries. When they were young, it was, it was rote memory. When it was middle of the kind of like elementary to middle school, it was like putting into practice language learning. When they're like, when they're sponges, you just want to fill the sponge. By the time they're high school, critical thinking. 
So if you're not helping your kids learn to think critically by the time they're in high school, somebody else will. Second, you need to have, uh, and this relates to the first, an ongoing discussion with lived examples. Be, don't be afraid to let them see the world with you standing right there. They don't have to see everything. But let them, as they watch just on a commercial, like I said, use that example to process together. You need to have a strategy for tech and social media. If you don't have a strategy, you're a fool. We, we let our oldest, when he was 16, have some social media for part of his recruiting. Even he regrets that move. He's, he's, he hasn't even turned 19 yet, and he said, I would, he said to his brother, don't, ever, and I, we wouldn't let him now anyway. But he, he I, mean, I mean, I pushed on it for a long time. And, I mean, he was literally having coaches who could not call him because he was not yet whatever the date of his junior year, I forget. And so they're like, the only way we can do it is some kind of DM and social media. And he's like, Dad, you're killing my chances. And I'm like, I don't think I'm killing your chances. And we went back and forth on this and talked to numerous people. Finally, when he was 16 or around junior year, we let him do that. And I think that was a mistake. I mean, cell phones are killing us in a ton of other ways. Probably 95% of you are addicted. But, but beyond that sad reality, Social media is dangerous for kids. I mean, when they turn 18, they're 18. You let them do what they want to do. But you know what my son done? He's, my oldest is almost completely pulled off. I think you have to be careful. And finally, you need to have a family culture of dialogue and compassion. If you are simply letting your kids know you hate the world, they will either likely hate the world or they will just not ever talk to you about it. But if they see you wrestle with compassion, yet principle. If they see you're sad, but you have a lot of opinions that you, you, you root in Scripture, then maybe, just maybe, they'll talk to you about it. Raising kids is, is hard work, and I think we have to work together on that as we encourage one another with our kids. And to be fair, all kids are different. Like, kids are, kids are different, parents are different, different exposures at school or homeschool. I mean, honestly, Christian school, I mean, when I went to Christian school, uh, the a third of the class I was in by my seventh, eighth grade year were kids that got kicked out of public school. So it was not like I was like avoiding it in like some pristine version of the new creation. Um, it was just, they couldn't go to public school anymore and then they could pay for school at the private school I was at. Last thing, we need to learn how to navigate a pluralistic society and a post-Christian culture as exiles in a foreign land. I don't think we're doing this well yet. And we can deny it as long as we can try, but the reality is we are now clearly in a post-Christian culture. We should have already been trying to live as exiles in a foreign land, but it's hard to make the kingdom great again when a lot of other movements are trying to make our own country great. And again, I'm not saying you can't make the, desire the greatest for your country, but too often, a love for country actually eclipses a love for kingdom. That's just, it's just inevitable. We're just imbalanced people. But we are living in a pluralistic society, in a post-Christian culture, and it will only increase. And you just need to know how to live in that. We have a lot of work to do when we're not a majority anymore. And we're certainly not a moral majority anymore. We are a minority. And real soon, brothers and sisters, 
There will be legitimate persecution, just as even now there are accusations of bigotry. And it will begin to show itself not just to institutions like our church, but it'll start getting personal. Where pastors and elders are being sued by cities or states, and you can imagine what our kids and grandkids could face. Now again, before you bemoan some kind of nostalgia, which is its own version of pride, let remind you that this is what our brothers and sisters throughout the history of the world have primarily faced. And if you don't understand that, then we have to do another growth hour. The majority of Christians in the world have not been a dominant force of power in their little worlds. They have been minorities. They have not had money. They have not had power. They have not had influence. And you know what their churches did? They thrived. And you know what's happening now in the richest country in the world? I I just heard this from Bill Patterson. If I get his stats wrong, he can correct me. We've lost more Christians. Uh, Bill, just stand up and say the quote. Will you? What, what have we lost? 40 million Christians. Give us that stat. 40 million Christians, if you take the in the last 25 years. The last 25 years, 40 million people have stopped going to church. We've lost more. What do you say? The, the two great awakenings, if you don't know your church history, those were massive movements post-Civil War and all the Billy Graham crusades, all those combined, we've lost now more than what those gained. When we've been what? In a position of power, with prayers at our Congress, with advertising you're a Christian when you're running for legislature, and talking about your faith as a presidential candidate. I don't think you can get much more power than that. More influence, more Christian connections in the upper escalon, and yet we've actually in the last 25 years, lost more people. They've de-churched and unchurched. Yet when you look at what's happening in other countries where they have none of those things, it is growing. So in what or in whom will you put your trust? All right, let's take, let's take a few minutes. We got some mics. Pat's got a mic. And does Doug have a mic or something? Doug, you take that aisle. Pat, you take this aisle. Let's, let's spend eight minutes, ten minutes maybe, comments, reflections, questions, and then we'll close so I don't get fired by the nursery workers. When we talked um, about the difference between sex and gender, it really opened my eyes. And I think when we see people struggling where their gender doesn't fit the mold of their sex, they're being fed a lie that they're wrong, that their sex is incorrect. Right. And what we need to do is affirm to them that God didn't make the mistake and because, because you don't know how to fix something mechanical you, you doesn't make you any you less You don't have to make man. it personal, Julie. I mean, that just hurts right here. But Right here. <laughs> um, it doesn't make you any less of a man. Um, me being a firefighter didn't make me any less being a woman. Um, it's okay to because we're both we have both of those characteristics in right. us, and I think the devil's at work just really trying to affirm to them that God made this mistake, and they are so confused. And when you watch them, they yell. And if we can be quiet and talk <coughs> softly, maybe they'll come down and be able to listen. 
Uh, and, and, and the impact on our adolescent girls especially is, is massive. It is. But yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't hunt. I, don't, I can't fix things. If I weren't like a massive, I could beat the hunters up. But I, but, or the mechanics, but that's about it, right? But if I, if, if it, I love books, like nerdy, like uh, it, I just played football too, right? But I'm just saying I wouldn't have fit all those, that just was, that my brain didn't work that way. But I'm just saying that's why it's helpful actually to see what sociologists see, is there is a distinction between sex and gender. Now that isn't denying, it isn't saying that there's all these genders, it just means that gender is a bit more on a continuum where you can have aspect, there's a range of what it means to be a man and a range of what it means to be a woman. And I think the church should be actually open. The moment we narrow that, we actually narrow how God made people. We don't, we don't want to narrow how God made people. Not every man has to be pro-camo or love to shoot deer. Like you could actually have a man in theater, in drama, and that's okay. Why, why that loses manhood or gets picked on by kids, I mean, and school is a cruel place, right? School can be a cruel place where all of a sudden those slots, and cruel kids are likely are coming from cruel parents. So the reality is, none of that's denying male and female. It just simply means what looks male in America, in a country, backwoods kind of context, is gonna look very different than male in New York City, or male in Tokyo, or male in South Korea. And, and if you're not allowing for that different cultural versions of male and female, then we're going to have a real issue with the next generation. Uh, don't you think, I, I find this in talking to some people and stuff, that they are afraid, and I, I use that word lightly, I, afraid to talk to somebody that is considered homosexual. They're afraid to approach them. And it's not because they're afraid to tell them what Jesus has said, but they're, they're afraid that by associating with them, then somebody's going to think that they're like that or that they are being cruel to the person trying to talk to them. It's almost like they're afraid it's going to rub off on them or something. Now, I think, I, I mean, and it's a, it's, it's a fair point, Linda. I, I think there's probably lots of reasons why. There's too many variables to know why that is the case. One worry of mine is that we've just been comfortable selecting some sins that we're going to focus on and other sins that we're just fine being, no one's afraid of associating with a super wealthy materialist that it might rub onto them or they would think that you're wealthy material. Nobody's afraid of rubbing shoulders with a celebrity. In fact, they would probably enjoy that. But somebody with this particular issue of sin and brokenness of creation, that one we pick on, yeah, I, that, that's a bit of a mystery of the human psyche in regarding to different cultures and different practices, and we, we just need to know that. Um, and we need to be aware of that. We, we, I, I am all for saying this is what the Bible says, and this is, you know, this is pursuing human flourishing for individuals, but I'm also saying Jesus would, Jesus would have had a meal with them. He would have literally had a meal with them. Um, and if we're not open to those kind of relational connections, we're following a different creed than the Bible. I just wanted to reaffirm, you know, the fact that you are talking about how we need to talk to our kids because I know, you know, my daughter who's now in seventh grade, even in fifth grade, and this is two years ago, was, it was very much something that was being discussed in her classroom. And it wasn't something that the teacher was bringing to the forefront, but these were actual fifth graders. And in our local schools, 
and in Roscoe Rockton. And, and it's not just a matter of at the high school being asked what your pronoun is. There's this subliminal message that is in every hallway because there's, there's a pink triangle that is all around you know, our kids every day at that high school, letting people know that this is a safe place no matter how you identify or what your gender is. And, and, and I think we need to look at the conversations that we have and the things that we do and how you're presenting this in our church because it is definitely something that is real and that our kids are facing. So if you don't think, I know it shocks my parents and the things that I've talked to them about. And so whether it's grandparents and parents or, or how we and look at embracing and loving people who are different from us, I think we, we need to really look at our mindset and search our hearts on those things. Yeah, I think, I think so. I've, I've just heard too many stories of people in maybe my generation or maybe older where their parents never talked about these things with them. Don't, don't do that. I, I mean, we, we, did a, we did a two-step process where my wife did it with our daughter, I did it with our sons, where we actually had kind of just like a... We, we, I, the first time, it was just like a simple breakfast out with dad where we talked about what it means to be a boy, right? I mean, we just talked about that and just about your body's going to be different. And we, I didn't, we didn't even go into girls. And, you know, I mean, we just talked about boy, what it means to be a boy, what your body's like, what you might be experiencing, what people are going to be talking about, joking that that's just boys don't need to do that. We don't need to get involved. And then the next year we had the more sexuality talk where it was a night away and I'll never forget, like we're talking about the whole process and one of my sons goes, I won't, he'll remain nameless, but it's, you can narrow it down to two. <laughs> He's like, you know, we just go through this whole thing about, the, you know, like the intimacy. He goes, okay, dad, I just got a question. Do we have to do this or is this, <laughs> is this like optional? I mean, I guess, I guess it's optional. I mean, you might want to talk to your wife, but okay, good. Okay, good. So I, I mean, I doubt he has the same opinion now or that his wife will one day, but I thought that was great. But again, look at the naivete and it's absolutely beautiful because the first, and, and it's now our whole family jokes about it because like we talk about it in the family, and, but it's, he was learning about those things from his dad. And out of those conversations was probably a hundred other questions over the next three years. Why would I not be, want to be the one to explain that to him and some video on a bus would be first? Why would I be afraid to talk about what actually God designed us to be and do? Like, why is that a shocking? Why are we all freak out about that kind of stuff that's good and natural and beautiful with our own children who want to hear from us? So we have to be able to talk about these. But we all, then that allows us then, without anger or rage, to talk about the distortions. And we can start with it. Man, if this is off, just imagine your wrong thinking or my wrong thinking about that, let alone what it could look like in our culture and our world. Our world. All right, one, one more question. We got one over here. Yeah, I just wanted to um, speak about just relationships and how when you see someone or um, have this stranger and you try to speak into their lives, if you have no relationship with them, how can they listen to what you want to share with them? And so it all starts with relationships. And if we're not willing to reach out and engage in them, where they're at, how can we share the love of God? I, 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 yeah, 
And I think, I think that fits the posture that, as a church, we've been re- recommending. The Purity From approach does one thing really, really well. It wants to appropriately guard our children and ourselves from bad things. The negative is it makes it look like victory is removal from the world. Praise God Jesus didn't adopt the Purity From approach. The Defense Against approach does some really good things. It wants to promote the right vision of human flourishing for God's common grace created world. The negative is it, it feels like if it can just beat up the people who have the other opinion or politically dominate, that it finds its success. That, that, that's, just, that's just been a train wreck of culture wars for the last 50 to 75 years. And to be honest, we've lost. We've lost a culture war. Um, the relevance too just wants to baptize what the world thinks is good. And again, the, the strength of that is we want to know the culture we live in. We want to be in the world, not, not of it. But it, there, there's no disconnect. There's no, uh, they've baptized it all, hook, line, and sinker. They haven't, they haven't separated what God's way is. It's that faithful presence. It's faithful. It's got some of that purity from, some of that defense against in there. But it's present. Um, and I think that's the hard, it's, it's way easier just to be angry or to be distant. What's harder is to actually do, is to be incarnate like Jesus was in our communities. In, but not of. He didn't just say, don't be of the world. He said in first, but not of. Hard to do, but I think that's the mission of the church. Even while we raise our own kids and raise our own families and live as exiles in a post-Christian culture, we need to think about being ambassadors and ministers of the gospel in the real lives of people. Thanks for being here. We'll see you next week.